Is it possible that a thoughtless act could precipitate a fatal curse? This is Mark Lyon. Welcome to the Other Realm. Throughout my life, I have collected true accounts left to us by those who have inadvertently crossed the invisible threshold from our world into the realm of the supernatural and returned to tell the tale. These are their stories. The story I'm about to tell you was recorded in the 1820s by the early 19th century novelist Theodore Hook as being entirely true, with only the names of those involved being changed, and as related to him by a friend he's calling Ellis, a friend whom he assures the reader to be a man as honorable and as brave as ever trod the earth. Late one evening, as Hook and Ellis were walking through the dimly lit streets of London, Ellis told Hook of a strange set of circumstances which had fallen upon a friend of his, whom, out of concern for the family involved, Hook chose to call Mr. Harding. One day, Harding, a respected and responsible man, holding a position as a magistrate in the British government, was making his way from his residence to his office in Somerset House. As he passed through Charlotte Street in Bloomsbury, he was approached by a beggar woman who called out, Pray, remember poor Martha. Give me a haypenny for charity, sir. Pray do. Though a kind man in other ways, Harding ignored the woman and continued on his way. He was a member of the Mendicity Society, an organization which attempted to curb street begging by its members refusing to give beggars money, but instead handing out tickets which a beggar might present to the society's office where his situation could be investigated and if deemed appropriate, he might receive food, money, and work. The woman, however, would not be put off, and continued to dog him, crying out repeatedly, Remember poor Martha! Remember poor Martha! Frustrated by the woman's badger-like tenacity, Harding spun round and in an uncustomary moment of rage swore at the woman. Curse that I have lived to see this, Martha screamed. Hark ye, man, poor, weak, haughty man. Mark me, sir. Look at me. Harding stopped and looked at Martha and in the words of Hook's narrative, beheld a countenance on fire with rage, a pair of eyes blacker than jet and brighter than diamonds glared like stars upon him. Her black hair disheveled hung over her olive cheeks, and a row of teeth displaying themselves from between a pair of coral lips in a dread smile a ghastly sneer of contempt. Harding found himself unable to move. 
Mark me, sir, said Martha. You and I shall meet again. Three times you shall see me before you die. My visitings will be dreadful, and the third will be the last. There was something dreadful about the solemn delivery of her pronouncement, not unlike a judge imposing a sentence of death. That frightened Harding in a way he could not understand. Almost without thinking, he withdrew a few shillings from his pocket and apologetically offered them to her. Here, my good woman, here, he said in a voice of atonement. Good woman, Martha snarled. Money now? I? I that you cursed? "'Tis all too late, proud gentleman. The deed is done. The curse be now upon you.' Martha turned her back upon him, gathered her ragged red cloak around her, and with an air of defiance walked away, rapidly disappearing into the crowd of passers-by. Harding felt ashamed for having spoken so harshly to the woman as he regretfully placed the coins back into his pocket and continued on his way to Somerset House. Although he carried out his duties that day with his normal efficiency, the earlier events of that day preyed upon his mind, and the words and face of the woman he had treated so callously haunted him such that rather than take the chance of chancing upon her again, he employed a hackney coach to convey him home. As he and his wife, Eliza, entertained dinner guests that evening, it was not until they had both retired to the bedroom that he told his wife of the incident with the beggar woman. Eliza scoffed at her husband's concern, asserting that he had done exactly the right thing and wondered why he had even considered offering the woman money when he could have merely given the vagrant a mendicity society ticket which she could have turned in for a bowl of soup. Although his wife promptly fell asleep, Mr. Harding stayed awake for some time, desperately replaying the incident in his mind, seeing the anger in the woman's face, and hearing her words over and over again. Still, life goes on, and there were so many other more pressing things with which to be concerned. The Harding son, George, was distinguishing himself as a student at Oxford, and their 19-year-old daughter, Maria, had accepted a proposal of marriage from Frederick Langdale, a most agreeable young man from a prosperous family. However, as Frederick was close to the same age as Maria, both the Hardings and the Langsdales agreed that the wedding should be postponed until Frederick came of age. Maria's health had always been fragile, and in the months following the encounter with the beggar woman, Maria was showing early symptoms of what was feared to be pulmonary tuberculosis. Still, Frederick proved himself a worthy lover, a frequent guest in the Harding household, spending as much time as possible by his fiancée's side. 
It was during this time that Frederick's father asked his son to take a look at some horses he was thinking of buying and offer an opinion as to their worth. When Harding suggested that he accompany the young man to the Hyde Park auction yard in order that he might also offer an opinion, Frederick was delighted, and off the two men went, Harding taking the reins of the horses hitched to Frederick's carriage. Frederick's team, however, quickly proved far too spirited for Harding to handle, and upon beginning a turn onto Russell Street, Harding suggested handing the reins over to Frederick. Misunderstanding Harding's intention, the young man failed to take the reins, which slipped over the dashing iron. Now free of restraint and direction, the horses reared in confusion and ran forward, sending the coach careening into a post, hurling the two men out and into a curb. The off-horse, hopelessly entangled in its harness, panicked, and violently flailed its legs about in an attempt to free itself. An iron-shod hoof plunged into Frederick's skull, the young man's blood flowing onto the street. As the horses finally succeeded in escaping, pulling away what remained of the carriage with them, Harding, having suffered a fractured arm and a dislocated collarbone, looked up and saw standing before him a contented smile upon her face, a woman in a ragged red cloak, Martha the Bigger Woman. Harding's injuries were treated, and he soon recovered. Frederick's wounds, which involved fractures in two limbs as well as the head wound, took two months to heal, during which time Maria was not allowed to visit or in any other manner communicate with him. By the time he had recovered sufficiently to see Maria, her failing health had become such that she could not be taken to Frederick's bedside, and her doctors predicted that her time on earth was limited. When Frederick's fractures had healed to the point that he could be safely moved, and his head wound was no longer frightening to behold, it was decided that he should be transported by carriage to the Hardings' home for the far too long delayed reunion with his fiancée. Upon hearing that she would be reunited with Frederick on the following day, Maria's eyes filled with tears of joy, and it was at that moment that the sun came out from behind a cloud, flooding the room with light. Perhaps you should draw down the blind, said Mrs. Harding to her husband, concerned that the harsh light might prove problematic to their daughter. Harding went to the window and as he reached for the blind, he froze, his face a mask of horror. He gasped. It's her. Who? his wife asked. Her. That horrid woman. There, standing in the street, watching their house with a knowing smile, was Martha, the beggar woman. Draw the blind and come away from the window, ordered Mrs. Harding. Evil is at hand, warned Mr. Harding. His wife turned back to their daughter and screamed. Maria was dead. Mr. Harding returned to the window. Martha was gone. 
and off in the distance he heard the voice of a woman gleefully singing. Twice the woman had come, and twice disaster had struck. Mr. Harding was now convinced that both he and his wife were at risk, and the Hardings fled London to tour the continent, where they hoped they might be safe from the beggar's curse. The passage of time, however, often has a way of turning what seems at the time to be the work of powers beyond our reckoning into what is later considered to be nothing more than dreadful coincidence. And, after two years away, they returned to their home in London to attend the wedding of their son George. Upon the return of their son and new daughter-in-law from their honeymoon, the Hardings threw an elaborate dinner party in honor of the newlyweds. It was just after midnight when a sound akin to that of a 48-pound cannonball rolling down several flights of stairs reverberated throughout the house. The sound thundered through the room in which the festivities were taking place, and as it departed, the parlor door flew open. Mrs. Harding rang for the servants. Children raced into their mother's arms. Other guests froze in stunned disbelief as the elder Harding stared for several moments at the open doorway and then followed with his eyes the movement of an invisible something which made its way to the fireplace. When the guests had all gone, Harding kissed his daughter-in-law embraced his son with an earnest solemnity the younger man found out of character for his father, and he expressed the fervent wish that God would bless them both with a happy life. When he and Eliza retired to their bedchamber, he turned to his wife and warned her that she must prepare herself for something terrible. What it is to be, or where the blow is to fall, my love, he said, I know not, but it is over us this night, for I have seen her for the third and last time. Seen who? Eliza asked. Martha, the beggar woman, he replied. When that tremendous noise was heard at supper, as the door opened, I saw her. She fixed those dreadful eyes of hers upon me. She proceeded to the fireplace and stood in the midst of the children, and there she remained till the servant came in. He gently kissed his disbelieving wife and attempted to escape from fear into the oblivion of sleep. The next morning he was found dead in his bed. Whether it was the force of imagination coupled with that unexpected noise that produced such fear as to rob him of life, I know not, said Ellis to his friend Hook. All I know is that he was dead. It was at this point in Ellis's narrative that he and Hook arrived in Bedford Square, where in a dark, bleak corner, Caroline Street enters the square. And there, said Ellis, is the street where Harding first encountered the beggar woman. 
But surely, Hook responded, you don't believe this story. How could I not believe it? I was there at the dinner party. What? Hook asked. Did you see the dreadful woman? No, replied Ellis. I heard the sound. I saw the door fly open. I saw the look of fear on Harding's face. But I did not see the woman. It was then, according to Hook, that the impossible occurred. Footsteps were heard behind them. Hook turned to let the newcomer pass, and he saw standing before him a woman with shining black eyes wrapped in a red cloak. Pray remember old Martha, the woman said with an evil smile. Without hesitation, Hook reached into his pocket and quickly gave the woman several coins. Thanks, my bonny one, said the woman with an unnerving laugh. Then off she ran down Caroline Street, singing as she went. Neither man dared to speak until they reached the comforting lights of Tottenham Court Road. Well, what do you think of that? asked Ellis. Seeing, Hook replied, is believing. This is Mark Lyon, inviting you to join me on the first day of every month as we explore more true tales from the Other Realm. The Other Realm is a production of Wind Whistle Theatre. Our music was composed by Dan Heflin. Support for The Other Realm has been provided by HauntedIsles.com, offering private and small group tours of haunted Britain and Ireland, and by Heftone Studios, producers of Phantoms of the Holbrook, a docudrama relating true events occurring at what well may be the most haunted hotel in the entire world, and Natalie a modern retelling of the German legend of the Lorelei, and by Wind Whistle Press, publishers of Jesse Adelaide Middleton's classic trilogy of true tales of the supernatural, The White Ghost Book, The Grey Ghost Book, and its sequel, Another Grey Ghost Book, and Lep Castle, The House of Horrors, by Mildred Darby, and San Francisco Ghosts by Mark Lyon, and The Young Ghost Hunter's Handbook by Mark Lyon.